this message, as we go through chapter 21, bits and pieces, I'm going to take a lot of things and kind of put it together and try to make it a cohesive unit. There's a lot there. Uh, by the time we get into it and done with it, it's a pretty heavy message. I just want to warn you on the front end, um, it, it, there's, a, there's a lot to cause um, contemplation. Uh, there's, a, there's a depth to it. There's a seriousness to it. Because what we're seeing is, is Paul is headed to Jerusalem where he will be arrested. He'll spend the rest of his life under arrest. Of a, a little portion of that time, he'll be kind of on free house arrest, but arrest nonetheless. And it will eventually lead to his, um, his beheading under Caesar Nero in Rome. So that, that's where the, the, rest of the, the rest of Acts is, is, is all the events leading up to his beheading. And so it gets pretty heavy, it gets pretty serious. Um, but I don't want you to think that, that all of the Bible is, is real heavy and serious like that. It, it's, it's, it's serious because it's, 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 it's God's word and we take it seriously, but um, there's, there's a lot of levity in the Bible. There's a lot of humor in the Bible that we don't pick up on. Uh, Jesus was very serious about kingdom work, um, but Jesus was full of joy, and, and, and there's a lot to be said about the fullness of life experienced with God, including joy and happiness and laughter. Um, and, and so I just want to make sure you understand that Though this message is going to get pretty heavy, I don't want you to think that following Jesus is, is always like, you know, a downer. Right? It's, there's a lot. When, when Jesus taught, he was pretty funny. He, he, they had some depth to him, some humor to him that we don't pick up on. When we read Scripture and we read the, the words of Christ, we don't, we don't read it as humor at all, but there's a lot of humor in the Bible and even in Jesus' teaching, here's the problem. Here's why we don't understand it as humor. Hebrew humor, Jewish humor, in, in, it's pretty complex. But one of the things that encapsulates Jewish humor is exaggeration. And so the stories that were told, that were just these extraordinarily exaggerated stories and accounts, there's an element to humor to that. So much so, and this is how my kind of sanctified imagination works, if I can use that. That, that when Jesus is, he's funny, and it's exaggeration, and he's sitting around with the guys, and, and I can imagine something going down like this, like he's like, okay, okay, wait, I got one for you. Okay, so it's harder for a rich man, right, to get into heaven than, <laughs> this is awesome, than it is for a camel to get through the avid needle, <laughs> and they all like, ah, Jesus, you cracked me up, that's so funny. Because it's so exaggerated. You understand? You didn't. That's funny. You can't just see, just hey, pull my finger real quick. Just do it. Just see that. You know? You can't. Like there's this humor all, all, all throughout. We just don't read it that way. And so I just want you to understand as, as we look at as we look at God's word, we take it very seriously. And we're very serious about the work. We have a very joyful attitude about it. Does that make sense? You understand? So I, I just don't want you to walk away thinking, man, the whole Bible is just a bummer sometimes. It's not at all. 
But as we go through this series in Acts, we're going to be in primarily in Acts 21 today. I want to start in the book of Romans. Romans is a letter that Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome. And he wrote it when he was in Corinth. And we read about that season of his life back in Acts chapter 18. It's approximately, it was written approximately 27 years, after, 27 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus and somewhere around 22 years after Paul's conversion. He's in Corinth and he writes this letter to the Christians in Rome. In just a couple of years of the writing of the, what we know as the book of Romans, he will be arrested and taken to Rome where he will eventually be beheaded. Romans is Paul's, if you will, Christian manifesto. And it's brilliantly written. And one of the things I want us to take note about before we get into Acts 21 is Romans chapter 8, verse 29. This is what the Bible says in, in Paul's writing. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, I don't want us to get lost in the phrases foreknew and predestined. We could spend hours running down that trail and, and, never, and never come to a, a really balanced understanding. Those are some prof that's a profound idea. What I want us to get lost in is the phrase conformed to the image of his son. A disciple is one who is conformed to the image of the son. And the question we have to ask ourselves is this. Is that our desire? Is it our desire to be conformed to the image of the Son? Now, my brother Sean has a resounding yes to that. And I love you. I'm proud of you. We're praying for you. But before anybody else has a hasty yes to that question, we need to talk about what it means to be conformed to the image of the Son. Now watch from the book of John what Scripture says. This is Jesus talking. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you and give you a bunch of thumbs, ups, and likes. So be careful. It would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, guess what? They will persecute you also. If they obey my teaching, they'll obey yours. We have to understand that being conformed to the image of the Son is a lot more than just loving people. And most people would say, no, I want to be just like Jesus because he just, he just loved people. I mean, that's what Jesus did. He just loved everybody. And I want to be conformed to the image of Jesus and just love people. Well, you know what? You don't understand the totality of who Jesus was. Being conformed to the image of the Son does include loving people, certainly but it is so much more than just that. 
And Jesus says here, if you want to be conformed to my image, guess what? It's going to put you at odds with the culture and at odds with the world. And they hated me and persecuted me. So if you want to be conformed to my image, what does that necessarily mean for you? Hated and persecuted. Jesus was not hated because he loved people. We have to understand this. Jesus was not hated because he hung out with quote-unquote sinners. I, I get so tired of well-meaning but ignorant people who have not understood Scripture who say that Jesus was killed because he hung out with sinners. That's not why he was killed. That's not why the religious people hated him. Well-meaning but ignorant teachers say that he was hated because he hung out with sinners. And No, he wasn't. He was unaccepted, rejected maybe because of who he associated with, but he wasn't hated and killed for it. He was hated and killed because he claimed that he that through him was the only way to be saved. Through him was the only way to the Father. That's why they hated him and killed him. For instance, this is, this is all in the book of John, John chapter 5, verses 16, 17, 18. So because Jesus was doing these things, all these good things, on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this, for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even claiming God was his own father, making himself equal with God. That's why they hate him, and that's why they wanted to kill him. It wasn't because he was doing good stuff. It wasn't because he was loving people. Because he was claiming that he was the only way to the Father, that he and the Father were one. Watch this. I am and the Father are one. It doesn't get much more simple than that and plain than that. Again, the Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him, not because he was hanging out with people of ill repute and loved people. They picked up stones to stone him because he said, I and the Father are one. But Jesus said to him, I have shown you many good works, from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? They say, we're not stoning you for any good work. We're not stoned. We don't stone you because you loved people. We're just going to stone you for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. That's why they hated him. Now watch this. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Here's what we have to understand. That Jesus' claim to exclusivity is what caused their hostility. Just please understand this. Jesus said there's no other way to get to the Father but through me. His claim to exclusivity is what caused their hostility. That's why they hated him. So to be conformed, to the image of the Son, before we ever get to the book of Acts, in chapter 21, I need to establish this. To be conformed to the image of his Son means we proclaim, first and foremost, the exclusivity of Jesus. That it starts and ends and rests on him and him alone. Not just loving people. 
We proclaim the exclusivity of Jesus in a loving way and not obnoxiously, but we have to proclaim the exclusivity of Jesus. I was talking to one of my friends that I've been talking to for years, and he's accepted Christ, and he's, 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 he's figuring out what it is to follow him, and it's such a fun journey to be on with him. And he has such a heart that those in his world who are far from God get to know, get to know God. And, and, and he made this statement just a couple days ago to me. He said, I don't care, you know, what they believe, you know, Mormons, whatever, as long as they come. And I'm like, no, stop. Just stop for a moment. It does matter what they believe. It centers on the exclusivity of Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's not about Joseph Smith. It's not about Muhammad. It's not about Buddha. It's not about good feelings. It's not about self-actualization and realization. It's about Christ and him crucified. And when that becomes the stake we drive in the ground, I guarantee you that those who don't believe that will start hating you for that belief. Because the moment you say it's through Christ and Christ alone and it's your relationship with him, that is it. End of discussion. The moment you say that, it leaves a whole bunch of people on the outside. Do you understand? And it's that very exclusivity of Christ that caused their hostility against him. And if we're going to be disciples conformed to the image of Christ, it means we must drive the stake in the ground that says it is Christ and Christ alone. Amen. But be aware that the moment that is your proclamation, the world will turn against you. Before we move on into Acts 21, I need to establish another foundational uh, something that has to be said. It's, it's, got to be, it's got to be settled in our hearts. And until this is settled and unwavering, we will struggle with what it may mean to be conformed to the image of the Son. Once you understand what Jesus, what he, what he went through, and now Paul being conformed to the image went through because he was conformed to the image of the Son. Once you understand that and you realize that if that's what it means to be conformed to the image of the Son, you're going to struggle with what that means unless you have this foundational thing, like set and unwavering in you. And, and here's what it is. In Romans, in Romans chapter 8, verses 34 through 37, who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is what? interceding for us right now. And if he's interceding for us, he's raised from the dead, he's interceding for us, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long and we're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who what? Who loved us. We have to know that because of the resurrection, Christ is interceding for his people right now. And we have to know that in that intercession, 
We will face trouble. We will face hardship. We will face persecution. We will face famine. We will face humiliation. We will face danger. We will face harm. We must think of ourselves as sheep going to the slaughter, but none of those things should ever make us question the love of the Father. Even in those things, we are more than conquerors, not in their escape, but in our resurrection through them. And as we go through those things that we will face, being conformed to the image of the Son, we must never doubt the love of the Father. And it culminates in verses 38 and 39. For I am convinced, even though I go through hardship and trouble and nakedness and harm, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's where it culminates. Nothing. Pain, trouble, tribulation, destruction, death would ever make us question the love of the Father. Yes, yes. And if that is not settled, and if that is not unwavering in us, at some point, as God works to conform us to the image of his son, if that's not settled, we will question his love. Because after all, God, if you love me, why would you allow? Do you know what Paul's greatest desire in prayer was? He tells us in Philippians chapter three, Paul said this. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of the resurrection. Stop right there. That would be one of those. We'd stand up and go, I like that. Right? Like, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Absolutely. But look at what he says. And participation in his sufferings. How many of us, I wonder, woke up this morning and said, dear Lord, thank you for another day. If I could have one request, would you please grant me the opportunity and the privilege of participating in suffering today? Was that anybody's, was that anybody's prayer? It wasn't mine. Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings and becoming like him in his death. And so somehow, attaining to the resurrection from the dead, what a profound prayer. The power of his resurrection, absolutely. Coming through participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, attaining a resurrection. For Paul, that's what it meant to be conformed to the image of the Son. So I have to ask again, how many of us who call ourselves disciples or Christians would say now, no, yeah, man, I want to be conformed to the image of the Son? It's tough. And so I want, you, I, want, I want us to walk through this portion of Paul's life, knowing that this is his prayer. I want to know Christ and share the participation of his suffering. Become like him in his death that I might attain salvation. Knowing that is his desire, I want us to walk through now a little bit of chapter 20 and, 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 and big parts of chapter 21. And we'll see how God answered Paul's prayer 
being conformed to the image of his son. And what we'll see is that Paul's life followed very closely the life of Christ leading up to his crucifixion. Consider. This is of Paul. When he arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. So he was headed to Jerusalem. Okay, that was the goal, to get there. Just like it was Jesus' goal to get to Jerusalem. This is of Jesus in John 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Here's what I'm saying. Paul, like Jesus, had this overwhelming desire to go to Jerusalem, the place where they knew they would be arrested and killed. They knew this was God's path. This was the Father's plan. And they had this overwhelming desire to go there. And in going to that place where they knew arrest was waiting and death was imminent, Jesus nor Paul ever doubted the love of the Father. Conformed to the image of the Son. Watch this. This is Paul. When we heard this, we and the people there who were with Paul, they were his companions, we pleaded with Paul, do not go up to Jerusalem. We understand what's headed there. Don't go there, they tell Paul. Just like with Jesus, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Paul, like Jesus, was discouraged by those closest to him in going to Jerusalem and walking that path that God had for him. Others were fearful of what awaited them, but they remained undeterred. Why? Because they never questioned the love of the Father. Look at Paul's life. It mirrors, it mirrors Jesus. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple and they stirred up the whole crowd and seized him. So Paul is in Jerusalem and he's at the temple and the festival that he was there to celebrate is almost over. And these his Jewish brothers rile up the crowd and, and, and start to create this mob because they want to arrest him. It's the same type of thing that happened to Jesus. For this reason, and we read this already in John 15, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he even claimed, uh, even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Here's what was happening. Like Jesus, Paul also faced opposition from Jews who were hostile to him and wanted to kill him. He was coming to his own people and his own people rejected him. Like Jesus, Paul was going to his own people to say, there is a way to God, and I want to show it to you. And like Jesus, his own people turned against him, were hostile to him, and wanted to kill him. And even in the midst of knowing all this was going to happen, Paul and Jesus went through this. Why? Because they never doubted the love of the Father. Go back to Acts 20. And now compelled by the Spirit, Paul says, I am going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there. He says, I'm not exactly sure how it's all going to go down, but I'm not going to question the love of the Father, and I know that he's called me there, just like Jesus. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Here's what I know. Paul, like Jesus, was determined to complete the call. 
and he faces hostility from those he came to help and abandon himself to the will of the Father. I don't know what's going to happen, Paul says, but I'm abandoning myself to the will of the Father. Jesus tells Peter, get behind me. You don't have the, in, in mind the things of God, but only human things. Get behind me. I'm abandoning myself to the will of the Father. And they could do that. Why? Because they never doubted the love of the Father. I can abandon myself to his will when I don't doubt his love. You follow me so far? This is what it means to be conformed to the image of the Son. Watch this. Back to Acts 21. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready to not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Look at what Jesus says. Going a little further, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Like Jesus, Paul was ready to lay his life down for the sake of the kingdom and the call of God. What makes Jesus, what makes Paul willing to lay their life down for the sake of, of, of the kingdom, for, for, for God? What makes, them, what makes them do that? They never doubted. What? The love of the Father. I was talking to David this morning. I told him some research that I'd come across that I just found interesting. And I didn't know if I was going to share it, but, but I will. It, it, when we started tracking uh, keywords and publications, uh, every, every book that, that we have in, our, um, in, the, in the Library of Congress, has all been input in this computer system, and it tracks all these words of, of all these uh, books that have publications that have been published. And they found something really, really interesting. Two words: give and get. Up until 19, about the '60s, give far exceeded the, the, the times give was used in publications far exceeded the times get was used up until the, about the 60s. And then something interesting happened in the 60s and 70s when the baby boomers, the older baby boomers, really started to come into their own and publish. And things were written to this segment of, of the culture. In the, in the, in the 70s and, and 80s, give and get kind of evened out. Just as many things were written about getting as was giving. And then in the 80s on, those have completely shifted. So that get far out scores give. In each successive generation, now the, the times giving is mentioned in publication is so far beneath the times getting is mentioned that what has happened and, and what researchers are, are, are realizing is that this, this quantum shift happened. It started in the 70s and really took off in the 80s and 90s and on, where our culture stopped talking about giving and became solely focused on getting. 
So much so we have a couple generations now who don't consider anything worthwhile that requires giving. Only that is worthwhile is what I can get. And what I see is this is played out in the church. You start looking about the, the, the early 80s and, and to present now, especially most messages and lessons that are taught in the church center around how do I get a better marriage? How do I get better finances? How do I attain my dreams? How do I accomplish my goals? And it is completely ceased from what can I give and offer to God? And as I look at Scripture, everything I see in Scripture is not about how do I get something from God. He's already given me all he needs to in his son. And out of response for that, my only response is to give back to him everything in my life and my very life. And when we look at Scripture and we see the disciples and we see the first church and we see Paul and they seem so otherworldly to us, what would make a man and a woman, that women do this and be this committed to giving themselves to the kingdom? What we see is, they were before baby boomers. <laughs> it wasn't about what they could get. They already understood what God had given. And out of response for that is, what can I give? Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And so many of us, and, and, and younger than me, are coming to faith and coming to church thinking, what can I get from God? How does he make my life better? And without even realizing it, we have jumped on this cultural bandwagon, this cultural wave that said it's not about giving anymore, it's about getting. And we've transferred that to faith. And so we read people like Paul and other people in Scripture, we think it's so different because it's the way it's supposed to be. Also, I'm willing to give my very life. I'm not asking anything in return. Believe me, I, I want to get stuff from God. I need all the mercy and grace I can get. I want him to give it all to me. And he has in Christ. And so we have to ask ourselves, if, we're, if we've come to faith under the wave of a generational shift that says, I've come to faith because I want to get something from God, or... Do we understand scripture that says he's already given enough, his son? The only response is I give it all. I realize what time it is. I got to finish this or I'm going to do it next week too and you're going to get this twice. So This is the mob around Paul. Fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place, the temple. And besides, he's brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. It's all a bunch of lies they're making up about Paul. And, and, and in the temple, the temple courtyard was divided. There was a, a, a temple, a courtyard of the Gentiles and the courtyard of the women and the courtyard of the men. And, and the Gentiles could be around the temple, but only in the outer courtyard. And there was an actual sign up right before you crossed over into the court of the women that said, if you cross this barrier, your blood's on your own hands, you will be killed. And at the, at the temple area was the only place the Roman government, Roman soldiers, <clears throat> allowed Jews to carry out the death penalty. If a Gentile non-Jew went into, 
any of the courts of the Jews. This was serious stuff. And Paul wasn't purporting that, but that's what they said about him. Same thing they did to Jesus. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony about Jesus. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days I'll build another not made with human hands. Paul, like Jesus, was arrested based on false accusations and continually lied about. And they were okay with it. Why? Because they never doubted the love of the Father, Billy, you're right. The commander came up and arrested Paul and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked him who he was and what he had done. There was all kinds of companions with Paul, but Paul was the only one arrested, just like Jesus. Jesus says in the garden, am I leading a rebellion that you come at me with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone, look, everyone deserted him and fled. Paul, like Jesus, was arrested. None of their companions were and they were left all alone. Everybody walked out on him. Everybody denied him. Everybody left him. And they're okay. Why? Because they never doubted the love of the Father. You want to leave me? It's all right. I don't doubt the love of my Father. You can walk out on me? Okay. I don't doubt the love of my Father. You're going to turn your back on me? All right. I'm not going to doubt the love of my Father. Paul is being conformed to the image of Christ. Do you see this? As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, can I say something to you? Do you speak Greek, he replied? Aren't you the Ethiopian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out in the wilderness some time ago? There was an actual account of an Ethiopian who was part of what was called the Securii, these dagger men. And they they were terrorists that were trying to overthrow the Roman government. And 4,000 of them, dagger men, started killing Roman soldiers and, and tried to start this whole, this whole mob revolt against the Roman government. That's who this soldier thinks Paul is. It's the same thing that happened to Jesus. Pilate asked Jesus, are you, are you really the king of the Jews? They didn't know who he was. Like Jesus, Paul was arrested and convicted by people who didn't know their identity and didn't know what they were there to do. It's what makes Jesus' words on the cross so amazing because in the midst of all that, Jesus says what? Father, forgive them. They what? They don't know what they're doing. Was it unjust? Absolutely. Nothing about it was right. But Paul being conformed to the image of the Son says, Father, I'm not going to doubt your love for me. I'm okay. One more. The crowd that followed kept shouting to Paul, get rid of him, get rid of him. They're not saying take him somewhere else. They're literally saying kill him, kill him, be done with him, wipe him off the planet. Guess who else heard these same words in the same place from these same people? 
The whole crowd shouted, away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Like Jesus, Paul heard those same words shouted from the same people at the same place, get rid of him, kill him, crucify him, be done with him. And in the midst of all that, they never doubted the love of the Father. So, do you really want to be conformed to the image of the Son? There's a lot more to it than loving people, though that's part of it. But to love the people who do you harm, even because you trust the love of the Father. If we want to be conformed to the image of the Son, we ought not be surprised when the events of our lives look like the events of Jesus' life. It ought not surprise us. We're being conformed to the image of the Son. It ought not surprise us, and we should never doubt the love of the Father in those seasons. There may be times when we're in the wilderness alone, There may be times when we have needs that only the Father can meet. There may be times when everybody else has walked out on us. There may be times when it seems like we're at the mercy of the storm that swirls around us. There may be times. There may be times where we cry out to the Father as in the Garden of Gethsemane, God, if there's any other way, but not my will, but yours be done. There may be times when you simply lay down your life and trust God and you wait for a promised resurrection that you don't experience yet, but you know's coming. There may be times. And in those times, we don't doubt the love of the Father. And so the one question we have to ask ourselves is, is it worth it? I say yes. I say yes, it is worth it. We will participate in the sufferings of Christ. It's worth it. We'll become like him in his death. It's worth it. It's worth it. For the joy set before us, we will endure. It's worth it. It's worth it because where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? It's worth it. It's always been worth it. It's worth it because our endurance is, being, is, is our perfection. It's worth it. It's worth it because to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's worth it. It's worth it. It is worth it. Why? Because Christ is enough. It is absolutely worth it. Why? Because he is our reward. It is absolutely worth it. Why? Because he is our satisfaction. It is absolutely worth it. And because it's worth it, there's no turning back. Though none go with me, yet I will follow. There's no turning back. Because it is worth it. Because it's worth it, I will never doubt the love of the Father. So
So some of you, I challenge you this morning to pray that prayer that Paul prayed. I want to know Jesus and his resurrection, the participation of his sufferings, become like him in his death, that I might attain salvation. Not that it's worked for, but through the suffering we experience resurrection. And to pray that prayer, Father, make conform me to the image of your son. If you call yourself a Christian, a disciple, this is, if you realize it yet, but this is what you signed up for. If you haven't made this decision yet, I want your eyes to be wide open. That this in part is what you signed up for, but it's worth it. Because of what God's already given his son. That you might attain resurrection. So don't you ever doubt his love. Don't you pray with me. Father, thank you. Thank you for what you've already given. Thank you that you loved us before we ever could even choose you, that you loved us and chose us and worked the plan of your son to come to this earth, to, to, to live and to lay his life down and to be resurrected. Thank you. Thank you that you proved your love for us in that. And because of what you've already given, we want to, in response, say, Father, take it all. It's worth it. Father, I thank you for joy. I thank you for peace. I thank you for comfort. And I thank you that all those things are guaranteed that even when we go through the storms and the tragedies and the difficulties, that we don't ever have to doubt your love for us. I thank you for what's waiting for us. Thank you for what's waiting for us. Father, I pray, I don't know who in this place right now, but I know there's some whose heart's desire is to be conformed to the image of your son. Father, would you do that in us? You've already given us more than we could ever hope, ask, or imagine. In your son, you've already done that. Out of response, we say, here I am. Offering my life as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you. This is my act of worship, Father. Here I am. You are worth it. No turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. You are my satisfaction. I'm not turning back. You are my hope. I'm not turning back. You are my provision. I'm not turning back. 
If I walk all alone, Father, I'm not turning back. You are worth it. I give you myself. Conform to the image of your son. In your name I pray, amen. Listen, I know I went long. Thank you for your patience and your grace. We're going to sing one song. Here's my ask. This song is about the sufficiency of Christ, that he alone is enough, and about the disciples' response to say, I'm not turning around anymore. I'm not turning back. And so if that is, is in this moment, is truly your, your desire, your anthem, then just sing it as if it is. If you haven't made up your mind yet, just let the words swirl around in this place a little bit. If you're still on the fence, man, thank you for being here. Thank you for letting me get get into this with you. Keep searching him in this place. He is all you need. And I pray that one day you will understand that you never have to doubt the love of the Father. He's enough. Let's see.